Welcome to Beaver Lodge Alliance's sermon podcast. We're so glad to join you. This is the latest sermon. We pray that you would receive encouragement, exhortation, and that Jesus would speak to you through this sermon. Enjoy. Thank you, Esther, for that. It's always good to hear about some of the things that are happening around around the world. I saw Colette last night, actually. Uh, We just happened to run into each other, so that was really neat to see her again. That was good. Natasha, how close are you financially? Sure. Okay. So if if you feel the nudge from the Lord to, to help provide funds for Natasha, please talk to her. Um, if you feel a nudge from the Lord to pray for Natasha, please talk to her. She's got an email list, all kinds of stuff. So it would be really good for you to get in contact with her and, and uh, just connect with her. That would be good. Well, today's a good day. Uh, do you guys know why today is a good day? <laughs> that, that works too. Because God is good, right? Because God is good. Yeah, God is good. We have a good God, and so that makes this a good day. But who is God? Who is God? I'm not actually looking for answers. I just want you to, to think about it. Moses asked this same question way back uh, when, uh, when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt. Most people know who Moses is. He's the one that helped lead Egypt or lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Moses was walking along and he was kind of in, in a self-ostracized place. He was probably close to 80 years old, and he was walking through uh, the, the pasture land. He was a shepherd, and he was out there, and as he's walking along, he saw a bush that was on fire, but it wasn't burning up. And he thought that was interesting, so he walked closer to it, and all of a sudden, the voice of God spoke to him. And it says it came from the bush, but you can imagine God's voice kind of booming all around him. And as he's there, the Bible records that Moses was kind of cowering a little bit before the voice of God. He was kind of shielding his face. And God, God told Moses, I want you to go to Egypt and I want you to free my people. And, and Moses kind of says, who am I to, to go and do that? And God says, don't worry, I'll, I'll be with you. I'll go with you. Now, that sounds like a wonderful, reassuring answer, isn't it? If we were to hear God say, I'm going to go with you to do this big thing I'm asking you to do, we would be reassured. But Moses kind of turns to God and he says to God, that sounds great, but who are you? You see, at this point, God had not really, I mean, he, he sort of had shown up a lot. He'd shown up in lots of different ways, but Moses really had a very little understanding of who God was. And fast forward a, a couple thousand years, and Jesus is walking with his disciples. This is God in, in a body, Right? So a similar situation, not in a burning bush this time, but God in a body, Jesus walking with his disciples, and he turns to his disciples and he says, hey, hey, who, who do people say that I am? It's interesting that he uses some very similar language. Back in Moses, when Moses asked God, who are you? God says, I, I am who I am. And here, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, who do people say I am? The disciples give some really good answers that are completely wrong. It's really a, quite of a funny little thing. They, they say, well, it looks like maybe you're Elijah, come back to life, or, 
or something like that. It's just really interesting what answers they give. It's totally wrong. But then Jesus makes it personal. And he turns to his disciples and he says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter steps up and he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, That's so good, Peter. On this rock I will build my church. After Jesus left this earth, Jesus' church began to grow under the teaching of the apostles, and the teaching of the apostles is founded on that rock, the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But within the first hundred years of Jesus physically being here on earth, there were many heresies that began to pop up, many false teachings about who God was, about who Jesus was, about what Christianity was supposed to look like. There were so many false teachings that began to come up around this early part of the church that the church worked super hard to clearly define what were the main teachings of Christianity. We need to really clearly define this because there's so many heresies popping up. We need to clearly define this. You can see some of the battles that happen against those heresies, heresies and false teachings. Uh, They show up in the letters that are written in the New Testament. Actually, much of the New Testament is written to combat the heresies and the false teachings that were beginning to pop up. This was only a couple dozen years after Jesus was here on earth. Already these heresies and false teachings were coming up. And the apostles were writing letters to the churches to try to teach them what are some of the main teachings of Christianity to help them to defend themselves against the false teachings. Early on, In the early church, um, during the time of the apostles and during the time of what was happening there, early on, there was a set of foundational truths that were laid out and established that taught the church what it meant to be the church and who Jesus was and all these things. They're, They're truths that have survived all these generations from the time of Jesus until the time of today. It's a set of biblical guiding principles that was early on called the rule of faith. The early church set up these things. And there's biblical stuff. They took stuff from Scripture and they began to set out, here's the stuff that is so important to the church. Some of the church leaders and historians and theologians that we know about today, Irenaeus and Tertullian and Athanasius and others, wrote about these things as early as the second century. They began to write about the church's rule of faith. The rule of faith was taken from many places in Scripture, but mostly taken from some of Jesus' very last words to us. In one place we find them in Matthew chapter 28. Here's what Jesus said. In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The apostles and the early church took this uh, commandment from Jesus very seriously. They, They began to do exactly this. They began to do exactly what Jesus told them to do. This statement from Matthew 28 became one of the foundational things of the early church. They baptized new disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This became one of their main foundational truths in this rule of faith, which simply affirmed their core belief in one God, the Father Almighty, in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit. 
Now, there's so much more that we can say in regards to this teaching. And in fact, the early church fathers and the, the early historians wrote about these things. The, the, the uh, epistles, the letters to the New Testament, write about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and expand on who is the Father, who is Jesus, who is the Holy Spirit. These early church emphasis, the early church emphasis on the Trinity is something that has moved through the last 2,000 years that billions of people across the world have learned about who God is because of these things that, that the early church has solidified as the most important things to the faith. In fact, this rule of faith, as they called it in the early church, became uh, the foundational uh, teaching for what, what we ended up hearing about is the Old Roman Creed. Now, you may not have heard about the Old Roman Creed, but that was what they called it early in the second century. But later on, within just another 50, 100, 200 years, the Old Roman Creed became the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Now, they word things a little bit differently, but they're the basic belief of the early church that continued to go on throughout all the years. We've actually recited these creeds here in this church before, and you may have seen them before. I give, you, you can take a chance later on to look up the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed if you haven't heard of them before. But both of these creeds focus on what the early church thought was so vitally important, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And even if you don't come from a background that recited the, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, you've likely been to a church that, like our church, uh, that often has benedictions that sound kind of like these benedictions. One of the benedictions we often speak is out of 2 Corinthians chapter 13 that says just basically this, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. A benediction that wonderfully puts the whole Trinity all together in it. Or another benediction that pulls the Trinity forward is out of Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You can't hardly read any of the New Testament without coming across an expression of the Trinity. Now, the word Trinity is not in the New Testament. But the Trinity, the concept, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is all over in the New Testament. I mentioned earlier that there were many heresies that popped up even in the first hundred years of the early church. And most of these heresies and false teachings revolved around misunderstandings of the Trinity. Is God one God or three gods? One God in three persons or one God in three expressions? Or one God in three disguises? Who is God? And how can we understand the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Well, understanding the Trinity Biblically, understanding the Trinity biblically is vital and central to what it means to being a follower of Christ. In fact, you can't be a Christian without believing in the Trinity. You can't, because it is so central to what it means to be a Christian. 
So over the next nine weeks, we're going to spend some time digging in to the Trinity. This new series that we're going into is called Let's Dance. And I know that that triggers some people as we think about dancing, but we're calling it Let's Dance because of one of the ways that's going to be helpful for us in understanding the Trinity, which is the perichoresis. We'll get back to that in just a minute. The Trinity is very simple and very complex at the same time. If you look at our statement of faith that we have on our website, we have a, a, a list of 11 statements of faith on our website, uh, or 11 parts to our statement of faith. And if you look at our, our statement of faith, you'll see that we believe that there is one God who is infinitely perfect, existing eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's one sentence. It's one sentence. It seems so simple, right? Just one sentence. In fact, every single one of us in here could probably memorize that fairly easily. Even if I turned off the screen right now, you'd probably be able to tell me the gist of what I just said fairly easily. It's super simple. But while it is simple, this truth about the Trinity is also incredibly mysterious. We can quote this belief in the Trinity, but the comprehension of it is far more complex What are we saying when we say that we have one God who exists eternally in three persons? Well, here is where the concept of the perichoresis helps us. The term perichoresis, again, is not in the Bible, just like the term Trinity is not in the Bible. But both of these two concepts, perichoresis and Trinity, are biblical concepts. The term perichoresis came around around the 8th century, um, and it combines the terms peri... Uh, which means around, think of like a, a circle type of a thing, and corine, which means to give away. The idea of perichoresis is best understood as a circle dance, wherein the partners are connected to each other. They dance around each other, consistently giving away themselves to each other. You'll see it often depicted like, uh, like what's up on the screen here with three intersecting arcs, uh, symbolizing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Perichoresis is the mutual intersecting of the three persons of the Trinity, expressing deep connection. You can't have God without Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's deep connection and reciprocity, meaning they're constantly giving away to each other giving away to each other. The persons of the Trinity glorify each other. Three co-equal persons, perfectly embraced and centered around love and harmony. I want to give you some examples of what I'm talking about from Scripture here. You guys may or may not know, but in the book of John, from about chapter 14 to 17, Jesus has a long dialogue with his disciples And in that dialogue, he teaches his disciples, he reassures his disciples, he tells them he's about to die and go away, so he's kind of giving them his his last words, right? But in this section of Scripture, Jesus prays for himself, which is great. It's in John chapter 17. Here's what Jesus prays for himself. He's speaking to his heavenly Father, and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. You 
Now, a little earlier in chapter 16, speaking about the Holy Spirit, here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you, he's speaking to the disciples, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. In just these two verses, we see the Father glorifying the Son, the Son glorifying the Father, the Spirit glorifying the Son, this reciprocity, this perichoresis, this circle dance, where the Trinity moves in step with each other and glorifies each other. Each member of the Trinity co-equal in their divinity. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. And none of them claiming supremacy over any of the others. They are co-equal. In fact, this is one of the reasons why Jesus was killed. This whole idea of Jesus being co-equal with God was a crazy idea to to the Jewish people. They didn't understand it. And it's one of the reasons why Jesus was killed. So I want to show you this in Scripture. The context here is this. Jesus is healing people on the Sabbath, which was a big no-no for the Jewish people. It was not a no-no, obviously, for God. God loved it. But Jesus was healing people on the Sabbath. The religious leaders are ticked, and this is what happens in John chapter 5. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is at his work to this very day. And I, too, am working. For this reason, look at this. For this reason, the the religious leaders, they tried all the more to kill Jesus. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. They understood what Jesus was doing. They understood. The religious leaders heard what Jesus said, and they're like, yeah, we know what you're saying, Jesus. You're saying you're equal with God. That's not okay. They want, they, the interesting thing was, they were killing Jesus because he was saying something that was completely true. They, they didn't misunderstand him. They knew what he was saying, and they wanted to kill him for it. Here are the Jewish re- leaders. It's interesting in here because in this passage, it says that the Jewish leaders were already trying to kill Jesus. Like that was their plan ahead of time, before he even did this, because he was causing all kinds of a ruckus. But here they find a reason to kill him because he claims to be co-equal with the Father. We're going to go over this a little bit more when we focus in on Jesus as we go through the next nine weeks. We're going to take some time to focus on Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk about this a little bit more later on. But the point that I'm trying to make here and just share with you here is that Jesus considered himself equal with God. In the early church, there was a time when people were... um, Oh, oh, sorry. Sorry. I'm moving on, but not really as I can move on. I want to show you a passage of Scripture as well. So Jesus claims to be co-equal with the Father. And I want to show you a passage of Scripture here as well where we see that the Holy Spirit is also God. So here's what happens. In the early church, there was a time when people were selling land and they were bringing it to the apostles to take care of the needy. Everybody was trying to take care of those that, that needed to be taken care of. And there's a couple in the church at this point named Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, and they sell their land... And their plan is to bring some of the money to the apostles, but keep some of it back. Now, they were allowed to do this. This wasn't a problem. But what they did was, when they brought the money, in in full knowledge of knowing that it wasn't all the money, they said it was all of the money. Do you guys understand what's happening here? 
Okay? So they sold the land for 100 bucks, but they kept 20 bucks in their pocket. They brought the 80 bucks and they said, this is all that we got for the land. So they were lying, right? So here's what happens in the passage. Peter finds out. I mean, the Spirit, I think, is speaking to Peter about it. So in Acts chapter 5, here's what happens. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for, for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. See, here Peter realizes that in lying to the Holy Spirit, when Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit, Ananias was lying to God because the Holy Spirit is God. All three persons of the Trinity are co-equal in their divinity. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. And all three are worthy of praise and worship. All three are eternal with no beginning or end. We read in John chapter 1 that Jesus, who is the Word of God, was with God in the beginning. All three are distinct as well. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. It's not like God puts a different mask on in different times to talk to us. The three persons of the Trinity are distinct. They're distinct and they have their own roles. They have their own responsibilities. It's the Father who sends the Son. The Son died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. The Father and the Son then send the Spirit. And it's the Spirit who now fills us, empowering us and equipping us. All, all of the parts, all of the persons of the Trinity have distinct roles and responsibilities. We're going to talk more about their distinctiveness as we move forward in our series but what I want you to, to understand today is that God is not a shape-shifter, sometimes showing up as Jesus and sometimes showing up as the Father. Our God is one in essence, existing eternally as three distinct persons. Okay, so back to the perichoresis. The perichoresis helps us to understand the relationship within the Trinity, but it's still difficult for us. Even though we, we kind of understand a dance and we can kind of get the idea of the perichoresis, it's still difficult for us to fully comprehend this mystery of the Trinity. And it's okay. That's okay. It's a grand mystery, and it's actually really good for us to be able to say, this mystery is a bit above our pay grade. It's greater than we can comprehend. But we should still try to understand as much as we possibly can. So to help us, there is actually an earthly illustration that we can use to understand the Trinity a bit more. And I think that God specifically made a part of his creation this way so that we could understand the Trinity better. The illustration I think God has given to us is the illustration of marriage. And if you look at marriage, marriage could have, I mean, the way that God created human beings could have been all kinds of different than the way it is. But I think the way that he created human beings is, is so that we can understand a bit of his character and who he is. So we're going to talk about marriage here. And while I share about marriage, I, I just, I, I know that not everybody's married, right? Not everybody here is married, and that's fine because marriage actually isn't for everybody. But many people are married or at least know someone who is married, and so this is an illustration that we can understand. But if you're single, please don't check out. The illustration of marriage is helpful to us whether we're married or not married. It's a helpful illustration in understanding the Trinity. 
So here, way back in the beginning of creation, when God made man and woman, he made the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. And God performed the first marriage ceremony. And in that ceremony, here's what God says in Genesis chapter 2. He says, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, God does a very interesting thing here. God says two things in this one little verse that will help us in our understanding of the Trinity. The first is that God says that man will be united to his wife. The Hebrew word God uses here is the word debak, which means to cleave to, to cling to, to stick to, to stay close to, to join together like two parts becoming one. The second thing God says here is that the two will become one flesh, using the word echad, which means compound unity, something that is that comes together and is made of two distinct parts. So God says a man will unite to his wife and the two will become united. It's almost like he's repeating himself. A man will unite to his wife and the two will become united. God uses these two words, debak and hechad, to overemphasize just how deep this connection is between the man and the woman. This connection is incredibly deep, and yet God speaks of it in a way that still holds up the distinction between them. That they're united, but they're united as two distinct persons, but still one. The two people are deeply united, but also distinct. Two distinct persons, one flesh. Now, just a little while later in Scripture, God says something amazing in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. You may have heard this before. It might sound like a totally different thing, but you're going to see how it's connected here in a moment. Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 6, verse 4 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is called the great Shema. All Israelites know this verse. They repeat it every day. This is the, the, the verse that set the Israelites apart from all other religions. Everybody else around the Israelites had many gods. They had a god of, of the land and the god of the sea and a god of the air. But the Israelites had one god. One god who was over everything. This set them apart. So they would repeat this verse all the time. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The great Shema. In this verse... Do you know what word God uses for one? There are lots of words in the Hebrew language for one that means singular, one, individual. But do you know what word God uses for the word one? You're right if you're thinking echad, the same word that he used for the husband and wife coming together to become one. Not one singular, but this idea of compound unity, different parts coming together to make one. So the verse actually says, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is Echad, compound unity. Which even though the Israelites would say this every day, and they're like, yeah, we are the people who follow one God, this verse was always sort of strange to them because they're like, why did God use that word for one? But we know today the reason God used that word for one back then is because God has always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
The same that is true in marriage, two distinct persons, one flesh, is true of God, three distinct persons, one God. Marriage gives us this illustration that helps us to understand the Trinity a little bit more deeply. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? And so now I want you to look at something that is just, it's going to blow your mind once we get to the end of it. You'll, you'll figure it out. And it's connected here, but it's not going to appear connected right away. Okay, so let's, let's look at this. We fast forward to Jesus in the book of John, the same section of Scripture, John chapter 14 to 17, the same place where earlier Jesus said the Father would glorify the Son, the Son would glorify the Father, and, and the Spirit would glorify the Son. At the end of this conversation, chapters 14 to 17, Jesus prays for all the people who would ever believe in his name. That's all of us. Jesus prays for us. If you've never read this prayer before, go to John chapter 17 tonight because Jesus prays for us in this section. Okay, so Jesus says this prayer. I'm going to read it off for you here. It's a little fuller as you read it in Scripture. Uh, if you read it, go read your Bible. So read it later in John 17. But here's the part that I'm going to read. So Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone. He's talking about his disciples because he had just gotten done praying for the disciples. And now he says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in, my, in me through their message. That's all of us. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. What's Jesus describing here? He's describing the perichoresis, right? So, the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. Jesus says that he's praying for all of us that we would all be one, just as the Father is in him and he's in the Father. This is crazy. Do you understand what Jesus is saying here? Let me just keep on going. May they also be in us. So not just what they would be one, not just that all of us would be one the way that the Father and the Son are in each other, not just that we would be one. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then Jesus says something even more crazy. Jesus has already said that the Spirit glorifies the Son. Jesus has said that the Father glorifies the Son and the Son glorifies the Father. And now Jesus says, I have given them the glory that you gave me. What did Jesus just do? He's glorified y'all. He's glorified y'all. That they, you all, may be one as we, Father, Jesus, are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to, he's using these words again, complete unity compound unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Are you seeing what Jesus is doing here? Jesus, in his prayer for us as his followers, asked the, follower, asked the Father to make us united and one using the same language that comes out of this marriage illustration and from the great Shema. Make us united and one, not just with each other, but with him in the Trinity. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are connected eternally in the perichoresis, the circle dance. And Jesus asked the Father to bring us into it. Ask the Father to bring us into it. If that doesn't blow your mind, then you probably don't understand what I just said. God created us not just to be his little servants running around worshiping him. No, God created us to be with him, to invite us into the perichoresis, this circle dance. You know, when my kids were younger, they haven't done this for quite a while. They might do this later on today or maybe they'll just think it's terrible. Uh, But when my kids were younger, when they would see Farrell, my wife, and I hugging, they they would sneak in there. Right? They, would, they, would, they, would, they would see us hugging, and I don't know if they thought it was gross or what they thought, but they would sneak in there until they were between us, and they'd go, it's a Katrina sandwich. It was fantastic. They just worked their way in there till, they were, till it was a Katrina sandwich. This is what God is inviting us into, into the middle of their dance, a Greg sandwich. Jesus is saying, Greg, get in here. Get in here in the middle of all this amazing love and, and, and mutuality and all. Get in here so that there's a Greg sandwich going on. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternal, co-equal, glorifying each other, perfectly connected in love and harmony, have made space for you and me to join with them, to be in the midst of them, to be in their presence Who does that? Who does that? I mean, if you look around at the religions of the world, the the gods that people worship around this world barely, barely put up with humanity. Like just really barely put up with, with humanity. But the one true God, the God of the universe, is not just putting up with humanity. The God of the universe invites his creation into his presence, into the most beautiful and sacred space that there is, into the perichoresis, into the midst of the Trinity. I mean, who thinks, hey, Father, hey, Spirit, we've got this perfect thing going on that's been going on for eternity. Let's make it bigger and let's invite those we have created to come in and enjoy some of the good stuff. You know who does that? A good father. A good father does that. A good father says, come on in. Come on in and join this. And we have a really, really great heavenly father who invites us into relationship with himself. You see, this Trinity thing is not just vital in our theological understanding of who God is. It is everything to Christianity. It's everything to Christianity. It's not just about believing it. The good news is that we get to experience it, that we get to experience this. Our God invites us to experience the wonder that is the perichoresis. Now, this is all over Scripture. As you begin to read Scripture, And you begin to look at Hebrews where it says that come boldly into the throne room of God. You go, oh, that's what that is. It's all over Scripture. But I want to just show you one space in Ephesians chapter 2 
that's so beautiful when we understand what's happening here. Ephesians chapter 2. But because of his great love for us, God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. Look, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Remember what Jesus said earlier? Father, Father, would you bring them in to be one with us so that the world would know that you've sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me? And here in Ephesians, we've been seated with Christ in heavenly realms in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We are invited into his presence to be a part of this. Now, if you understood Judaism, you would know that, that to be seated next to somebody would be like being equal to them. This is why it's such a big deal that Jesus keeps saying, I'm seated at the right hand of the Father. We read over and over again that God has raised Jesus up and seated him at, the right hand of his, at his right hand. To be seated with somebody is to be like accepted, to be brought into the family, to be a part of, to be into and we've been seated with Christ in heavenly places. We actually sang that song today. We sang that song today that we're seated with Christ. And this changes everything. We often think of ourselves as stuck in the muck. But we're seated with the king. We're seated with the king. And not just anybody gets to be seated with the king. Only those that have been invited into his presence. Now that's everybody. <laughs> right? But you guys get the idea. It's not like he just said, ah, let's just open it up. You have been personally invited because he loves you, because he cares about you, because he knows you, because he created you, because you belong to him. You've been personally invited to come into his presence to be a Greg sandwich or whatever your name is. The good news for us is that tr the Trinity, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has created space for you and me to be there in their presence. So over the next nine Sundays, we're going we're gonna to dance together with the Trinity. And we're going to get to know the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So just stand with me. We're going to close off with this song, and then I'll come up and lead us in a benediction. So just before I give this benediction, one of the things we've got to understand is this beautiful picture of the Trinity and us entering into this relationship with God is only made possible through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's only made possible through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's because he died and rose again that we're able to enter into this relationship with God. And here's the thing. Most of humanity are focused on eating gruel and grovel off of the ground when God has this amazing banquet for us. We're, we're, we're focused on the brokenness and on our own ways and our own sinfulness when God has this amazing relationship for us. 
And the only way we can go from here with our head down in the muck is by receiving the gift of forgiveness that Jesus Christ has for us to be able to move from here to here into this relationship. And so if you're here today or you're watching online, if you've never received the gift of forgiveness from Jesus Christ, if you've never turned away from the muck and your sinfulness and repented of it and torn towards God and said, I need you, Jesus. I need your salvation. I need your forgiveness. I need what you've done for me to be able to step into this. If you've never done that before, do it now. It's a simple turn. It's, it's turning away from this brokenness and turning towards God and saying, Jesus, I accept your forgiveness. I accept salvation from you where I can get it from no one else. I can get it from no one else. So if you've never done that before, do it right now. Just in your heart, say, Jesus, you're all I need. I turn from all my brokenness. Come and forgive me. I turn away from that and I turn towards this. This wonderful banquet, this amazing gift of relationship with God, turn towards that. And for those of you that have been maybe have done that before, you've turned your life to Jesus, you've given everything to him and you've accepted his forgiveness, but you still get caught staring at the muck when you've got this in store. Repent of that. I'm sorry, Jesus, that I've been staring at the muck. Help me to experience the full banquet you have in front of me of who Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit is, that I can be here instead of over here. So my blessing for you today is this. The one I read earlier from 2 Corinthians. Goodness gracious, the letters get smaller and smaller, the older I get. But may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now, today. In Jesus Christ's name. Blessings on you. Go in peace and get to know the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit more and more. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you'd like more information about us or find out ways to contact us, visit our website at www.beaverlodgealliancechurch.com. We pray today that you would experience the love, presence, and power of Jesus Christ and then make him known.